Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Barton. As longtime listeners of our show know, each and every week we devote ourselves to a study of the weekly portion that is read in synagogues throughout the Jewish world. The portion, called in Hebrew Parashat Shavua, the weekly portion, this week is entitled Vayetze, and he left. It begins in Genesis 28, verse 10, and continues through chapter 32. Let me give you an overview of the parasha before we delve in depth to a more narrow topic. This week, Jacob leaves his hometown of Beersheba and journeys to the biblical city of Haran. On the way, he encounters the place and sleeps there, dreaming of a ladder connecting heaven and earth, which angels climbing and descending on it. God appears and promises that the land upon which he lies will be given to his descendants. In the morning, Jacob raises the stone upon which he has laid his head as an altar and a monument pledging that it will be made into, as the text tells us, the house of God. In Haran, Jacob stays and works for his uncle Laban, tending sheep, and in return agrees to give him his younger daughter, Rachel Rachel, who Jacob loves. But there is a slight change in the storyline and Laban gives his older daughter Leah to Jacob, a deception he discovers only in the morning after their wedding. He marries Rachel a week later after agreeing for another seven years of work. Leah gives birth to six sons and a daughter. Rachel gives Jacob her handmaiden Bilhah, as a wife to bear children in her stead, similar to what happens with Avram and Sarai. And two more sons, Don and Naphtali, are born. Leah also gives her handmaiden, Zilpah, who gives birth to Gad and Asher. And finally, Rachel's prayers are answered, and she gives birth to Joseph. After six years, Jacob leaves uh, Haran and returns uh, to what will be the Holy Land for him. With me this morning to discuss this parasha is Rabbi Lawrence Englander. Rabbi Englander is a reform rabbi. He is the founding rabbi of Solel Congregation of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada, and he served there as its rabbi since its inception in 1973 until his retirement, and he now is the rabbi emeritus. He is also adjunct rabbi at Temple Sinai in Toronto, Ontario. 
Rabbi Englander received a doctorate in Hebrew, a doctor of Hebrew letters from Hebrew and college in the field of Jewish mysticism and rabbinics. And he has taught at York University and spent a semester teaching rabbinical students at Leo Beck College in London, England. Rabbi Englander, it is a uh, honor and pleasure to have you with us this morning. Thank you, Rabbi Garten. And you didn't mention uh, the greatest distinction, which is that you and I are classmates. We are. Yeah. Uh, you have gone on to a great career and a great uh, career as a scholar, and I'm honored to call you a classmate. Thank I know that you want to speak about the beginning of our parasha. Some of our listeners have a copy of the Torah, the Holy Scriptures, and for those who don't, let me remind them of what the Torah says. I'm in chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. Vayetze Yaakov me Beersheba vayelech rana. And he came upon a certain place and stopped there for the night, and the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid there in that place. Again, a repetition of the word place. He had a dream, a stairway was set on the ground, and his top reached to the sky. And the angels of God were going up and going down. And the Lord was standing beside him and he said, I am God, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. The ground on which you are lying, I will sign to you and your offspring. Let us stop there. And Rabbi Englander, I know that you wanted to begin our conversation by looking at that Hebrew word bamakom uh, that translates often into place and its repetition in the first few verses. Altogether, that word makom occurs five times in this small passage. So it obviously seems to be significant. I mean, looking at it just in obvious terms, I think what the text is trying to say to us is that what happens to Jacob is unexpected. Uh, it comes to him uh, as a gift, uh, as it were. Uh, now let's dig a little further. The word hamakom can mean something else other than place. And I want to read you a, uh, a midrash uh, from rabbinic literature. Rabbi Huna said, in the name of Rav Ami, why is God called hamakom, the place? And he answers, because God is the place of the world, but the world is not God's place. We can spend a whole few hours just on that statement alone. So but I, I want to make sure that our listeners have followed. A, a midrash is an explanation of some uh, part of the Torah that is of interest to the commentator. And like Rabbi Englander, the ancient commentator was taken by the repetition of the word makom, and so writes an explanation in which the commentator 
indicates to us that the word Macron has a secondary meaning. The meaning is a name for God. That uh, also that also gives a very uh, interesting meaning to this story. Uh, the plain meaning is Jacob came upon a place, but now Jacob came upon God. And as the story continues, that's exactly what happens, where, where Jacob uh, encounters God's presence and, uh, and God gives him a promise uh, of, his, uh, of his future and the future of his people. Well, it's an unusual twist, no? Uh, when we read the literal account, it seems pretty specific that Jacob is traveling and he has to settle for an evening. And the Torah tells us that he takes a rock and he uses the rock as a pillow. And those who have camped uh, wherever they are know that you take a pillow often from uh, grass or the fallings of trees or branches. Here it's a rock. But the interpretation changes this very literal story of a walk in the desert into a uh, transitional meeting between the third of the patriarchs and the God of the covenant. And I, I'm going to save till the end uh, the significance of that rock that Jacob uses as a pillow. That's going to be my punchline. Okay. But in the meantime, going back to another passage that you read, uh, Jacob lies down, he sleeps, he dreams. And in this dream, he sees this ladder going from uh, him or, or beside him all the way up to heaven. And then the text says, and he beheld angels ascending and descending on the ladder. Now, the rabbis, once again, of the Midrash, see that as rather unusual. I mean, after all, if angels live in heaven, shouldn't it have said that the angels were descending first and then going up? Why is it in this reverse order? And there are a few explanations that they give. One of them is that even though Jacob was alone, he had to run away from home uh, after deceiving his brother, as Rabbi Garten mentioned, uh, he was running away for his life. His brother was really angry. So he was alone and afraid. And yet, having the angels ascend first gives the meaning that he was he never really was alone, that there were angels that were accompanying him and keeping him safe all the way along the journey. Then there's a second possible interpretation to this, which is that the um, angels that were ascending are the angels of Jacob's childhood. And they are now leaving him because this is going to be a moment of maturity for him. And the angels of his adult life are now descending uh, that ladder uh, to be with him uh, for the rest of his journey, not only on land, but the rest of his journey through life. So two interpretations of the angels, but perhaps our listeners would be interested in knowing how uh, the Torah speaks of angels. In uh, general culture, we think of angels wearing white with uh, wings, uh, and we think of good angels, and we think of bad angels. Uh, one of the most popular shows on Netflix is called Lucifer, uh, a TV show about angels who uh, walk the earth. 
Um, but in the Torah, we don't have an angel called Lucifer. We have angels who, at least in this story and in other stories of Genesis, are unnamed. So how do we understand the role of angels in the Torah? Yeah, the word uh, for uh, angel in Hebrew is malach, which basically means messenger. And so if you look at where angels appear in biblical literature, they are always there to perform a mission. So here, the uh, well, before we, start, uh, before we talk about this, if we go back to the story of Abraham, uh, you'll remember that Abraham was sitting at his tent and he sees three angels coming toward him. Those angels have a mission, first of all, to heal him because he had just uh, been circumcised. Second of all, to announce that his wife, Sarah, was about to give birth to Isaac. And then the third angel was to announce the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So uh, here in this story, the angels ascending and descending the ladder also have this mission of uh, protecting Jacob and guiding him along in his journey. Just as a sidebar, uh, Rabbi, you mentioned that angels are basically unnamed, and that's true, except for two instances. One of them is in the book of Daniel, where we, we get uh, the angels uh, Michael and Gabriel that are named. And uh, in the book of Job, we get this uh, very famous angel named Satan, except Satan is not the devil that occurs in later literature. Satan in the Bible, Satan kind of means, I would translate it this way, Satan is the crown council of heaven. And his job is to keep God on his toes so that God doesn't get too complacent. Uh, so he does perform a mission uh, as well, a very uh, loyal mission to God. So I want to just stay with this for a moment uh, before we go back to the angels ascending and descending. Um, is it your sense that the mission of an angel is uh, sanctioned by the divine or do angels have kind of an independence uh, as they are presented in the Torah? I would suggest it's the first thing that you said, that they're, they're basically angels of God. And um, once again, rabbinic literature in the Midrash kind of develops this further to say that angels may be perfect. They're, uh, they're incapable of, of doing any evil. They're not bodily. They're, they're spiritual in form. And yet the one thing angels lack that human beings have is free will. And that's why, in a sense, there are stories about the angels envying humankind uh, because God has given us that gift. But it's also a lesson to us that we need to use it wisely. So I'm just going to uh, push you a little. Um, why does, in your opinion, why does the Torah use the image of an angel as a messenger rather than God speaking directly? I mean, we have lots of occasions in the Torah where God speaks uh, and his message, because uh, the Torah speaks in the language of uh, masculinity, God's message is heard by Moses. God's message is heard by Abraham. Uh, why send an angel? And of course, it's not the only occurrence in, in beyond the book of uh, uh, Genesis, as you reminded us in Daniel and in Job, 
And, and in other books of the Torah, angels appear, uh, messengers appear. Uh, but why does the text in your um, wisdom use that instead of speaking directly for God? Yeah, Rabbi Garden, I think there's two reasons that we could think about. Number one, I think it's a way of saying that God works in the world. So it's not this baritone voice that comes out of heaven saying, do this, do that, but rather it's people who, or angels who look like people when they perform their mission, who are, are in the same space as we are. Uh, and, and we can interact with them. I think a second reason that God works through angels is in a sense, it's a, uh, it's a kind of test. It's kind of a way of saying, how are we going to respond? to the mission that God is giving us. And an example of that is in Deuteronomy, where, where Moses uh, quotes God saying, behold, I will send my angel to you to test you uh, on your journeys to the promised land. And I think that's a way of saying God will take care of us. God will protect us. God will give us a purpose in life, but it's up to us to accept that purpose and to enhance it by the way we live. It's just not uh, uh, out there in and of itself. So um, you're suggesting that the angels uh, are really a means by which God's presence is apprehended by humanity in a more in a less um, miraculous way. Um, I, I guess it depends how you define miraculous, uh, uh, but, but certainly in a more direct way, um, because as I mentioned, they're, they're, they're right here in front of us. So we can see them, we can speak with them. And so it's kind of a more immediate or imminent presence of God, that God isn't always way up there, um, you know, controlling things, but that God is right down here with us and urging us to, um, to respond. So Jacob sees the angels, uh, but then in the text, it tells us in verse 13, and God was standing behind him and said. So are the angels sent simply to uh, get his attention? Right, because in the, in the narrative, he has a dream he sees the angels going up and down, which, as you pointed out for our listeners, is the opposite way that we would have expected. We would have thought that angels living in heaven would come down and then go up. But the text changes in verse 13 and says, uh, God is standing right beside him and introduces himself. Well, I am the God of your father, Abraham, and God of Isaac. Interestingly enough, he doesn't call Isaac his father. Uh, and you may want to comment on that and the uh, obvious omission since Isaac is his father, uh, not Abraham, who's his grandfather. Uh, so why does a text do, and I understand you don't have a definitive answer, you only have the correct answer. Why <laughs> does... Um, the text shift and the angels remain mute, but God now appears uh, in a voice. Yeah, and actually God isn't beside him. God is at the top of the ladder. Uh, the, the Hebrew is nitzav alav, 
uh, that God was on the top of it, meaning the ladder. Great. So, so in a so, sense, the, the angels were, were intermediaries uh, to get Jacob's attention, to make that connection between uh, his earthly realm and the heavenly realm, and then God speaks. So in a wonderfully visual image, as the angels go up, Jacob is required to look up, and there at the top is the voice of God. And if the Torah had had the angels going down uh, to begin with, then Jacob would have been looking at the ground and not up. Yeah, could be. By the way, since we're all pinned to our computers uh, these days anyway, I would highly recommend uh, to our listeners that you uh, do a search for uh, Jacob's Ladder by William Blake. And Wonderful. He just yeah. a beautiful picture of, it, actually, uh, for him, it wasn't the ladder. It was a spiral staircase uh, with bright colors of red and, and orange uh, um, in the form of fire. I, I won't say any more. It's really worth looking at. And is this the only time that the Torah uses the image of a ladder? Ah, that's a good question. Um, it's the only time it's used in this particular sense. Uh, I can think uh, in the book of Joshua, where uh, the two spies who, who came in to view the land uh, were, were let down by their host in a ladder. But, but that was a, a very practical ladder. So here we have a ladder that connects heaven and earth. Uh, and Hamakom at, becomes... And I know you want to return to this. Hamakom becomes the locus of the connection between heaven and earth. Yes? Yes. I mean, that would be the image that's portrayed. Yes, indeed. Now, before we get to how that's spelled out, there's one other thing that we have to bring in, and that's what Jacob calls that place. Uh, he, takes, he takes the pillow, he turns it into a pillar or a monument, and he says, I now called this place Beit El, the house of God, and that this is nothing other than the gateway to heaven. There's a beautiful teaching by Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, who was a rabbi at the beginning of the 20th century. Here's how he interprets that verse. I'm going to read it. A house is something defined and limited with a division and borders. The gate of heaven, however, is on a higher level a perimeter without border, without end, without any division. Jacob saw both then. He saw a house of God defined by that very place, by that very makom where he had slept, and yet it also opens up to him uh, an open-bordered gateway to his future, uh, his future relationship with God, his future as uh, the third patriarch of the, uh, of the Israelite people. And um, I should tell you and, and the listeners that this particular passage was my was the portion that I chanted on my bar mitzvah. And, oh. and I remember very clearly what my rabbi, Jordan Pearlson of Blessed Memory, said to me uh, when he gave his address to me. And he said, just like Jacob, try to make to build the altars in the significant places of your life. I've never forgotten that, and I think it's a wonderful message for all of us. Well, it is that I suppose 
rabbi, person of blessed memory in the Torah, are trying to tell us that each place that we reside has the potential both to be a place and a gateway to heaven. If only we recognize it as such. Right. So uh, what a wonderful message. Uh, I want to read it for the listeners who may not have had a text in front of them. This is verse um, 16. Mm -hmm. Jacob awoke from his place, from his sleep, and said, Surely God is present in this place, and I did not know it. Uh, And then it says, Shaken, he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the abode of God, and this is the gateway of heaven. And early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set up as a pillar, and he anointed it, and he named the site Bethel. And as you've alluded to, this uh, suggests that all of us can make our abode a, um, a, uh, a small sanctuary. Uh, a mikdash uh, ma'at, um, and our lives can use that place as a gateway to heaven. Uh, what a wonderful insight. Um, I want to thank you for that. And now I know that as part of your uh, retirement life, you have been very involved in um, Zionist work, in the religious uh, connection to the land of Israel. And I suppose we should use the few moments uh, left to us to talk about how this passage serves as a uh, clarion call for uh, the Jewish people to understand the sanctity of the land of Israel. Yes. Um, Basically, I guess I can answer you this way. When I study the Bible, when I study Torah with Israelis, uh, there's a very different sense that Israelis will get out of the Bible that is not immediately recognizable to me. And that is that everywhere you look in the Bible, you can connect it to the land on which they are standing. And so that's, by by the way, why the second most popular religion in Israel is archaeology. (laughs) Because when you dig into the land and you find the roots of the Jewish people uh, in the land of Israel, once again, it grounds us just the way that ladder grounded Jacob. And and that we see that this is really the... um, the soil bed uh, fr- from which our people uh, emerged, and in our own generation, to which we are now, uh, to which we have now returned. And so, yes, the significance of Israel as a land, Israel as a state, uh, both of them uh, are, are very important to Jewish people, no matter where we live. And we see this not as the center, but as a center and an important center. Of, uh, of Jewish life today. You mentioned archaeology as the second religion of the state of Israel, uh, and I guess that fits with the image of the stone that, appears, that appears in the Torah portion, that here it is, the stone, uh, and that's what we discover when we dig down into the land. 
um, that which has survived the millennial uh, throughout the ups and downs of history, the stone, that powerful image of permanence. What a great reminder. Thank you. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Larry Lawrence Englander of Toronto, Ontario, Rabbi Emeritus of Cong Solel Congregation of Mississauga, Ontario, an adjunct rabbi at Temple Sinai, where he grew up. I want to thank him for joining me this morning and offering Midrashic insight into this week's Torah portion. You may find a copy of our uh, conversation on iTunes as a podcast or on the CHRI website. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and have a good day.